Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast no foreign power is trying to influence. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. Westminster this week has been rocked, yes, Steve, rocked, rocked in the most cliched fashion by revelations that an aide to senior Conservative MPs may have been a Chinese spy. It gives us a chance to talk about whether foreign policy is going to be a big issue in the upcoming general election. What's this story all about? Uh, and the long and short of it is, uh, apparently back in March or thereabouts, uh, a couple of individuals were arrested under the Official Secrets Act for basically being Chinese spies. Um, their, the, the identity of at least one of these individuals is basically out there. It's not being talked about necessarily uh, that openly. We, MPs have been told expressly not to talk about it, even though his name has been on the front page of a national newspaper. Yes. Uh, so it, it's, it's a bit of a weird, weird, weird situation. Um, but this uh, person is a parliamentary researcher um, for, uh, I don't know if he necessarily works directly with, un, under Tom Tugendhat. Um, he used to before he was security minister. Yeah. So, um, but, as, but basically has been connected to Tom Tugendhat, who is the securities minister, which is a bit of a, uh, that's an interesting person to be connected to. Before that, was he chair of the Foreign Affairs? He was indeed. Yeah. And there's another um, senior politician, Alicia Kearns, who's a former Foreign Affairs Committee chair mm. chairperson as well. Probably just a coincidence. Absolutely, just totally a coincidence. So, yeah, so this this individual plus one other, who I've not seen any of the kind of like notions of who, who they might be, mm-hmm. um, have been uh, arrested. Um, for being potentially being Chinese spies, um, and that the and the other potential um, thing that's kind of happened is a bit less has been given less media attention, which is kind of understandable, is that the Conservative Party have removed a couple of individuals from their candidate lists due to um, allegedly being too close to Beijing. <laughs> Well, yeah, MI5, I think, seems to have tapped them on the shoulder. I'm guessing that's what MI5 do, right, is tap people on shoulders yeah. and say... If you believe Richard Osman, who apparently had a, somebody tapped him on the shoulder to try and get him to be recruited, and then he failed the tests. Did he look round on the wrong shoulder? Yeah. Like, oh, no. um, yes, and we should say that the individual who we're not going to name either, he's, I think, denied the allegations, yes, hasn't he? absolutely. And Alyssa Kearns and Tom Tugendhat then suffered the ultimate indignity in the House of Commons of being... Uh, passionately defended by Barry Gardner, which no one wants to, no one wants that. Although I think maybe Robert Hutton of The Critic put it best in his parliamentary sketch, querying why uh, a foreign power would go to the great effort of trying to work out what Tom Tugendhat's views were, because usually you could just phone him up and he'd quite happily tell you them for free. <laughs> so um, Westminster has been rocked, Steve, but it's also apparently a bombshell report. So. There is no journalistic cliche being left unturned. Oh, that's how you know it's serious. Absolutely. Um, and it does form a bit of a pattern, doesn't it? So we've talked in previous podcasts about Huawei and uh, use of uh, industrial espionage by Huawei and industrial espionage is a big feature of China's foreign policy as well. Uh, there's a, a really good book, Hidden Hand, which is about the ways that China tries to 
an active influence on the world. So the Belt and Road Initiative is probably a famous example. It's 10 years old this year. Interestingly, that's, yeah, a fun fact. And um, I mean, the, the, there's been other Chinese spies. So there was someone, Russell Lowe, allegedly was a Chinese spy who worked for Diane Feinstein when she was chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, it's almost a pattern, maybe. Yeah, it's almost like they're looking for... Can't see what the pattern yeah. is there. Yeah. I'm sure it will come to us. Probably. Um, the China Gate I've completely forgotten about, which is a sort of the communist, Chinese Communist Party allegedly funding democratic campaigns as well, which broke in 1996. Um, I mean, everyone was a bit too distracted with Monica Lewinsky to properly look into it. Um, and a couple of uh, honey trap spy uh, things as well. So... Uh, so Ian Clement was a deputy to Boris Johnson. Do you remember Boris Johnson? I do remember Boris Johnson. Apparently he was London mayor. Um, but th this was a socially liberal Boris Johnson, which seems very different to the Boris Johnson we have as Prime Minister. Yeah, it's probably a different Boris Johnson. Probably, yeah. Almost certainly not the same Boris Johnson. And so he was approached apparently by a, an attractive woman. They had some drinks and they went and he invited her back to the hotel room. I'm, I'm told this is what happens occasionally in hotels. Um, and he passed out. He thought he might have been drugged and then woke up to find his room had been ransacked and his Blackberry content's been downloaded. And something similar might have happened in 2008. So the Hidden Hand also reports an aide to Gordon Brown. Do you remember Gordon Brown? Apparently he, he was Prime Minister too, yeah. apparently. Um, uh, what dark days they must have been and um this was on a, on a trip to china and again he had a he had his blackberry stolen and uh bar uh, and there was thought the number 10 denied reports was part of a honey trap scheme but again it feels like very similar situations to the ian clement so i suppose what we're saying is this is not exactly a one-off no it's 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 not new it's not uh, a case of oh my god the Chinese are doing something different this is actually a continuing pattern of uh, how uh, the Chinese are uh, approaching their effectively their foreign policy I guess is the best way to describe it um, they have made a consistent uh, attempt to try and infiltrate the personal spheres almost of like people who are senior politicians within like the defense and intelligence um sectors of of, of like com countries politics i mean we made a bit of a joke as to not seeing the pattern but that's basically it like they are deliberately targeting individuals who have some kind of say or a senior enough in politics to have uh, influence around uh, internal securities and foreign policy like it is an obvious pattern at this point that that is what they are doing um with when it comes to things like the uh, uh them funding uh, the democratic parties um kind of like defense fund um for um for for bill clinton during the monica Lewinsky stuff that almost seems to be very of a, of a similar kind of thing to what russia does in a lot of ways of throwing money at uh, you know political parties to try and destabilize um uh, uh you know to try and destabilize political uh adversaries uh, on the international stage for instance so for instance russia would fund um the front national uh in uh in, in france for very different means uh and uh with the aim being hey maybe that could it benefits russia in the long term at some point and i think what you're seeing with the uh, china gate as, as, as it was called is a similar sort of uh, thing there 
And I'm not aware of any other cases of that something, not overt, but quite so focused. It seems like everything else has been much more limited to the defence sector. Well, I suppose there's a bit of industrial espionage, there's a bit of like Confucius Institutes, I suppose, which I think they're trying to ban now, aren't they, on UK campuses yeah. about sort of trying to spread ideas. And I suppose Belt and Road is much more overtly sort of economic yeah. clout. I think I, what I find interesting as someone who probably reads far too many Cold War spy novels and is good for my health um, is that the, the people who tend to work as agents for China don't tend to be ideological. So obviously the big, uh, the big Cold War spies that you think about, people like Kim Philby, they are ideological. Yeah, they, they spy for Russia because they are they're communists or occasionally so I'm reading Red Giant at the moment and again the idea is it's researchers who are working on the atom bomb who maybe want to pass Russia information because they think that if the US has this information then Russia should have it too. Um, and that doesn't seem to be who you tend to get in these cases. It's not really ideological. Either it tends to be sort of honey trap or, or blackmail or sort of financial inducements or it's Chinese nationals who may be being pressured to do it themselves or doing it voluntarily but it, there isn't that sort of ideological aspect in the way that there was when the cold war itself was kicking off yeah no ab ab absolutely and i think a big part of that is possibly just down to the fact that china it, it, despite still being technically a communist country isn't actually trying to influence the world in in the term in terms of spreading communism in the way that maybe the Soviet Union was trying to do. Well, don't tell Stalin that. Yeah, that I was, know. <laughs> very, that was very much uh, an argument at the time. Wasn't I it? know, um, but their 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 focus is really just more about being a world power as a as a whole, rather than trying to spread an ideological message directly themselves. And so, I think as a result of that, you end up with a, a very different. Um, sort of individuals who are, I don't know if drawn towards is the best thing, because as you say, there's quite potentially, you know, Chinese nationals who may not want to do it, but are just being forced to via, via whatever means. Um, though, so you end up with just your more mundane, less less sexy, I guess, kind of like reasons for, for spying, which is just finances, just being t threats, all of those sorts of things, rather than uh, you know the the spread of the ideological mission, um, and I think that kind of feeds through also into the 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 the, the, the not necessarily uh, like in in like not necessarily spying elements of Chinese foreign policy, but certainly their desire to try and be seen as you know very uh, a partner that you can deal with. So let's let's not forget that the, under Cameron and Osborne, there was very much a bit of a focus of, hey, we should we should be looking to do more deals with China, trade more with them because they are an up and coming power. That's the sort of thing they like to see and what they like to encourage. And so you end up with, um, you know, sections of pretty sure every major um, political party um, having a very strong pro-China element because there are people who are. Um, legitimately sat there kind of going from an economic sense it makes it makes complete and utter logic for us to be friendly with them in the exact same way it makes the sense for us to be friendly with the US because these are the going to be the two um, you know superpowers um, 
in, in our lifetime and therefore let's make sure that we've got a good relationship with both of them. China's the influence is trying to to pedal. it's not as you say it's not spreading global communism it's it's more trying to challenge I suppose what they might call the rules-based order that the US generally certainly during the Cold War would disseminate and uh, and instead wanting to be more I suppose cooperation between superpowers and diplomacy rather than an order that's based on universal human rights say because that isn't really something it's particularly down with yeah no absolutely and i think i mean so much of the uh, the international order that we have is based off of the western western conceptions of liberalism um you know whether it's when you track it back to league of nations right the way through to formation of the un right the way to now it's still very much all based around what the west views as the ideal which is not necessarily what a lot of other countries view as the ideal because they have very different cultures and a very different kind of like standpoint on on things and as a result of that they do look at the international uh, order and rules and regulations or whatever you want to call it and go this doesn't work for us and so they are deliberately now they're in a position to try to do something about it trying to influence it so that it shifts and changes to something that that's more fitting to what they believe which we may not like as you say a lot of uh, the differences do do come down to things like universal human rights and things like that um which obviously we're we're quite in favor of and democracy i suppose don't don't get the impression xi jinping's a massive fan of democracy no not not not, not at all um and it's yeah it's it's effectively uh, the return of a totalitarian kind of like international standpoint that's not ideological at all, I, I would argue, um, in, in the in the political sense. Can like, you have a totalitarian standpoint? I know. It's, it's, it's not like, ideological. I'm very much an apolitical totalitarian. <laughs> I, mean, I want the state to control everything, but I don't really know why. <laughs> <laughs> I want the state to control everything because I just think it's the best way to get the stuff done, which I think is kind of where a lot of... China's stuff comes from at the moment. <laughs> well, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Cause as you say, I think uh, so. There's so much talk, especially in the in the Conservative Party at the moment, about how to deal with China. Because as you say, Cameron Osborne eight years ago, it was very much we're going to go with the economy, Love and we're going to ignore the human rights stuff. And now you've got a lot of China hawks on the Tory backbenches, and you know, Tom Tugan hat before as a backbencher, was also massively uh, uh, hardline. Yeah, I was going to say China's um, sceptic is probably the best way well, to put it. There's a few, I mean, I think China's government has sanctioned, and oh, no, that's Russia's government, ignore me, but, sorry, go on. Like Ian Duncan Smith, uh, whilst like not necessarily our favourite person, is, can, uh, is, 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 is as part of all of these various news that have been breaking, come out and basically reiterated a number of times that, hey, look, we need to be doing something about this. China is going to be a problem or China is a problem. Uh, and, and so you do have some quite senior people who are, you know, starting to, I don't want to say sabre rattle because it's not sabre rattling. Um, but that's the best kind of thing I can kind of think of. It's starting to flash warning signs. Mm. It's, it's been interesting to see how it plays out. And because uh, again, I think it, you have with, with China, you have what was a rapidly growing economy, but it's starting to stagnate a little bit, partly because of the sort of zero COVID measures that 
Xi Jinping sort of undertaken, and then there's a bit of a slow recovery out of that. You've got a property crash, you know, Evergrande, I think, is filing for bankruptcy. You've got lots of youth unemployment, a bit of a disaffected graduate. Yeah, they've also just got a general, like the general economics, like long term situation they've got. It isn't necessarily going to be that great because they've got uh, an aging population which with not enough workers, and it's they've also got the situation, and they've also got the as a result of things like the one child policy, massive gender imbalances that are, that are now starting to come through into the uh, in, 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 into society, where there are now just significantly fewer women than there are men. And you get the impression, so there's been a couple of economist articles on this of lots of interviews with Chinese millennials who do seem quite disenchanted mm-hmm. um, with their lot. And I suppose you could. That's just millennials, though, isn't it? <laughs> well, but I, suppose, but I suppose it's the. If we go back to your quite curious concept of totalitarian. Yeah, politicalness, yeah. But so, in a sense, you can do your apolit- you can be an apolitical totalitarian society if you're producing prosperity and decent jobs. Yeah. And if you don't, then that becomes harder. And and again, if you went, this talk of a lost decade of China's economy in the same way that there was with Japan in the 90s, but then Japan's economy stagnated when its population with a higher level of economic development and some of living than a lot of China is. And how that plays out, I think, is going to be quite interesting. Um, it's also something we're not really qualified to talk about. So we should talk about what we are qualified to talk about, it's which is lot, <laughs> UK public opinion. I've got some graphs here. Um, so I found it interesting. So because um, to uh, in, in terms of what voters think about China, I suppose you've got forty three percent of voters see China as the UK's biggest threat, and the only country that gets a higher percentage than that is Russia with fifty four percent. So I think there is. There, there is this sense, I think, that there is an issue that yeah. the UK needs to do something about. Yeah, there is definitely a... I'd say this has been there for quite a while, a notion that China is is becoming, or already is, a, a, a problem for the UK. Um, there are, even going back to, like I say, 2000 uh, and whatever, when Osborne and, and Cameron were trying to shift the UK stance to try and do more business with China. There were people who were kind of saying, is this a good idea? Um, and over, since then, obviously, things have just gotten more and more, um, I don't know if necessarily overt in terms, is the correct term, but it, it's been noticed more that China is doing things internationally um, and actively is looking to influence the world uh, uh, the world stage in a way that it maybe wasn't previously. And you've also got issues around the Uyghurs and the, mm. the camps and things like that, which have been, received a lot of attention as well. So you're left with a, a very different picture. I wonder if it's part of the power imbalance as well. So there was a Talking Politics, no, it's no it's a past, present, future event, on the American Century, and they had David Miliband on. Do you remember David Miliband? I do remember he David Miliband. He was going to be the next Prime Minister at one point. And the Prince of the Water. <laughs> he still is. 
refuses to deny, refuses to say whether he's going to stand as an MP or not in the next election. He's not going to. No. Okay, well, you hear you hear it here straight from a close advisor. <laughs> so something he said, which is slightly astounding, is that when New Labour came to power in 1997, the UK economy was bigger than the Chinese economy. And that isn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things. But actually, I think tells you just how much the rise has been. So I suppose as you have the relative... Uh, a lot relative decline, isn't there? Something I found interesting, so UK in a changing Europe, we've got a lot of polls, um, uh, which we're drawing a lot of the, certainly UK-based polls for this episode. They did a, uh, one of the questions they asked was, uh, if you had to choose, you know, is it, 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 who's it more important to ally yourself or to work with? Is it the US or is it the EU? And on, in general, on defence on relations with Russia, on regulating banks on climate change, the British public generally say you should work with, the UK should work with the EU rather than the US. The only issue, interestingly, that it said it was more important to work with the US on than the EU was on relations with China. Yeah, and I do wonder if that, that may be just the result of whenever we hear something about China on the international stage, it does tend to be almost like from from the US in some form. Like, for Donald Trump, for instance, spent like an awful lot of his presidency trying to trying to say, "Oh, we need to do something about China. We need to do something about China, or China, uh, as he called it." Biden again continues has continued that to a degree, not as overtly, but it is there. So I do wonder if it's maybe because the because U.S. news carries so much weight in the U.K. Um, compared to, 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 to EU news, just because we speak the same language mm. in, as, as, as the US, um, we get more of that sort of stuff coming through. Whilst whenever, if you think about the EU, you'd quite often hear when we were a part of it, and even when we're not members now, discussions of the EU is looking to have discussions around banking or climate change or, or, or whatever. And you don't necessarily hear about the EU and China that I can think of anyway. Well, there's an interesting thing about this week um, because the, the, the Commission is worried about China dumping electric cars, I think, into EU markets. So there's a bit of trade stuff that's starting to kick off. I think it's, it's, I think it's possibly the Trump rhetoric, as you were saying. I think maybe also, as you've, as you've said, you've kind of got these twin world powers of the US and China. Maybe there's a sort of sense of well, we have to pick a side, and if we're going to pick it, we might as well pick the US. But I find it interesting then that on relations with Russia, that okay, it's a narrow margin. So we're talking forty to thirty-six million people think that we should work with the US against China. It's forty-one to thirty-five percent think we should work with the EU rather than the US over Russia. So you know, it's um, we're, we're talking a polling error here, but still, it's significant enough. Yeah. I, I find it interesting that over Russia that it's with the EU, even though you think the US, with it, especially with Ukraine, the sort of military clout that's going on, you might go more Russia, but maybe it's just a geographical... Yeah, I, I think it's just a geographic geographic thing in relation to that, just simply because the, the places that have a border with Russia are, are European countries. Um, and, uh, and I think also there's probably going to be one of those things where there might be a bit of conflation... I suppose that could. Uh, maybe. Like, I'm wondering if maybe the 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 role of NATO in particular 
is because obviously NATO is a US-led endeavor, but so much of the discussion in NATO recently has been obviously a, a, about the expansion Europe. Mm. You know, um, can we bring Ukraine into it? Not really, but we can let Finland in, and we can do this, and we can do that, and you know, all of these sorts of things, um, which again has just been a very Eurocentric um, kind of focus, and so as a result of that, maybe just be people think Russia. NATO is Europe primarily, which, in terms of like countries involved, mm. it is not in terms of what it's what's being spent. Yeah, not in yeah. terms of who spends money and, and, and who funds it, but in terms of like the countries that are involved in it, it is EU centric because it was, you know, to stop Russia previously, <laughs> uh, and uh, as a result of that, I think I wonder if there's just like a, conf- a conflation almost between the two, an in- incorrect conflation, but conflation nonetheless. Imperialist aggression. <laughs> <laughs> Was that all right, Paymasters? Is that um, <laughs> moving on after that subtle piece of propaganda? <laughs> um, so, uh, so polls that have been undertaken since the invasion of Ukraine seem to indicate that you've got an increase in support of NATO since then. You've got an increase in support for defence spending since then, um, and also an increase in support for um, Britain's identifying as European. So, which again is a kind of interesting. I don't know how much of that is a, again a, hang, a sort of long Brexit, but it's um, so one thing that again it's another UK and a changing Europe poll. But the thesis that the um, that the author uh, has is that be, uh, partly because the invasion of Ukraine, I suppose there's other global crises, which it, you know we've we've gone through a global pandemic. We've talked about inflation as well being a, a bit of a global phenomenon, and therefore I suppose there's a bit of a heightened appreciation of how important foreign policy is. Um, although it feels so, it feels to me like in terms of that, and also Britain tends to be more supportive of Ukraine than other European countries, which I think is interesting. So in terms of, uh, I don't think I can't see much difference between the. The, the main parties, I, I'd even include the Lib Dems on that. Hello, Mark, by the way. But I I can't see there being much of a different consensus of the support we give to Ukraine or support for NATO or defence spending. That feels like it's... I mean, certainly one of the things Keir Starmer's trying to do is make sure that there is no way that, the, that Labour could be seen as weak on defence or unpatriotic in that way. Um, where I think you are going to see a bit of difference is in foreign policy over Brexit uh, because there is a, a, you didn't warn me Brexit was coming up <laughs> I said well I know I put it I said foreign policy and oh, then no. yeah. so but, but uh, only it, it just lets us finish off I suppose with talking about the other bit of foreign policy which is sort of Keir Starmer's policy on, on the boats and trafficking yeah. gangs this week because so we talked about the UK joining the horizon last week and it feels like again there's a sort there's a bit of an uneasy consensus over Brexit in the part in that no no one's going to talk about rejoining in in the next five years it's off the table so it's essentially how you mitigate the damage that was done by 
Johnson's really hardline Brexit deal. Yeah, it's going to be drawn back with bits and pieces here and there. So going back into the horizon, you know, doing deals um, actively with uh, the EU member states over refugees and things like that. And then potentially, uh, the way I can see it is within the next decade or so, us having a conversation that's a go at customs union and single market. I think so. I think Starmer's point, which is essentially we need to have some sort of agreement on an EU level about how we we have safe routes of refugees here because at the moment there are no safe routes of refugees and that means there's some we can have some sort of returns agreement of asylum seekers whose claims aren't made and also we need to sort out the backlog of asylum seekers claims that are being processed that to me is eminently sensible and the only way this is ever going to work and it's interesting that leads to lots of tabloid front pages about Starmer having to take in a hundred thousand refugees or all this kind of nonsense. Yeah, which is no, it's all hypothetical numbers, and they're just parroting a, a, a nice round number that the Tories threw out as a as a way. But again, if you look at like a lot of the polling on this, people don't like the fact that nothing has been done because, quite frankly, nothing that the Tories have actually put forward has been feasible or realistic in any way. And I think the mood around this. Um, is going to be much more. What's, what's the question? M- 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 I think the mood of the public is going to be much more about let's just get something done that shows we're making progress rather than just grandstanding for the sake of it. And even if it turns out that, you know what, this isn't what a lot of people want, at least it shows that it is being worked on. In a, in a serious manner, rather than just a string of policies being announced and then nothing actually happening with it. And this is part of the reason I think Rishi Sunak's approval ratings are falling, because it's pretty... He, he, and actually, he can't agree anything in a similar way that Starmer's suggesting, because his backbenchers will be completely up in arms. Yeah. In fact, what, what Starmer is suggesting was something that he wanted to do previously, but they had to abandon. So, And it shows you the absolute ridiculousness of where that we are with the Tory party at the moment where uh, Liz Truss in the last leadership election was asked whether France was our, our enemy or our ally and didn't really give a straight answer to the question even though I think at the time she was foreign secretary and just this uh, the, when when you think that you're going to have to met how France is one of our oldest allies and is we're going to have to work with France on these issues anyway, why the hell are we causing such diplomatic rows just to try and win a few points in the leadership contest? Yeah. And then the damage that does all the way down the line. Absolutely. Oh, I imagine Brexit may be sort of on the fringes but I, of the election, but I get the impression, and again, we'll end up talking about this because I'll get you in the darker room before we to talk about it, but it feels like Foreign policy won't be a massive issue in this election. Voters, it, I feel like it's on voters' conscience more than it was um, because of the issues we talked about. It's not as big an issue as the health service, as the cost economy, as cost of living, which are the sort of three biggies. And I was thinking about this, I feel like 2019 is actually probably one of the few elections that maybe was defined by foreign policy because a lot of it was about Brexit. The, about A lot of the context around Jeremy Corbyn, around his... Um, response to the Novichok poisonings that Russia carried out in Salisbury were one of the main reasons of approval ratings tanked you've got. His other views on foreign policy, which we have mentioned probably at length and briefly, 
were a big factor in the campaign as well. And it feels like, I suppose, maybe 2005, you could say there was a, the Lib Dems took a few constituencies because of a right. in a lot of heavily student areas. Apart from that, foreign policy isn't really a big, maybe 1983, I suppose. That's Falklands. That, yes, that's Falklands and unilateral disarmament. It's yeah. probably a bit of an issue. Yeah, and even and even then, like in those most of those, they're not necessarily that that they are part of a picture which leads to losses or gains or or, or whatever, rather than being a single defining uh, element. Um, I, I would say a sort of reflection of the national picture rather than defining it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably fair. Um, so, uh, so I suppose the the question after the question of. Is foreign policy going to be a, be a big issue in the election? Probably no. No, okay. I, 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 unless the only thing that can change that, and especially when given uh, foreign policy and what's going on in Ukraine and things like that, events events can come up, and there's still plenty of time for for an, for something that no one can really think about or predict to happen, um, which then you know mm. waterfalls down into the political discourse. And, and this is the this is the thing about the Ukraine war, isn't it? It's dependent at what point do does public opinion shift, and at what point does then that start influencing political actors? Because you get the impression my my, my impression from the scanning I've done of US polls is that that's starting to happen in America, but it might not happen properly unless we have a Republican president. Yeah. And, I'm not, and we're not seeing a lot of that in the UK, I think, at the moment. Um, but then again, we've got a very different setup, uh, I think, in terms of foreign policy differences. Like, because for the most part, other than a few big ticket items like Iraq, unilateral you know, disarmament, and a few other things like that, honestly, there's not that much difference between the parties as to what foreign policy should be, which has its upsides and downsides. From, from if you're in agreement with US, uh, UK policy or not. And I suppose both both Labour and the Conservatives have had their divisions over Europe and almost a within-party yeah. <laughs> arguments. So there's occasionally been consensus and occasionally not. I think that's it. <laughs> well, thank you for listening. Uh, if you have any feedback or any ideas of other things that we should talk about as we gear up for the long election campaign you can get in touch with me on twitter at paperback writer uh, you can follow me on twitter at acoustic radical uh, you can always support us on patreon as well on patreon.com forward slash not no champagne dave deppert composed our theme tune and james cram designed our logo happy plotting <laughs>